Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Mark 9, 30 through 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God to us. Right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks, Natalie. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. It's really good to have you today. Love the chance to meet you after the service. Uh, Sometimes we get asked why we structure our service the way that we do with the various elements. They're they're often referred to as liturgical elements. And, uh, And here's why. We believe that all week long, there's songs and stories that are being sung and told that shape the way that we love that shape our affections, that shape the way that we want to live and see our place in the world. This is a moment where, as the people of God, we get to come in and be reminded of what's true. So that call to worship that we give at the beginning, it's it's not us calling you to worship. It's God, the Father, calling us to worship Him. And then we have these songs that we sing that are filling our minds and our hearts with truth about who He is and what He's done and how we can live in light of that and, and have joy in light of that. Then we have confession and assurance, where is a moment where we get to be honest about the failures of this last week, the the ways that we missed it, but not hang our heads low to receive the forgiveness and the comfort and assurance of God. And then we move into a time where we pray for the world because there's so many things that God cares about. There's so many things in our life that are not yet fully uh, fixed or restored the way that God intends them to be and will fix one day. So we're praying, God, bring your kingdom, your, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Then we have this moment where after, you know, talking about giving, we're, we're not being, we're not being uh, ordered and governed by money, we're being ordered and governed by generosity. We then sit under the word together and we're hearing truth and we're being reminded. And then we're sent out with the bread and the cup, this, 
this physical presence of Jesus that goes with us throughout the week. And it's just this whole time that's shaping us and forming us. So if you've got questions about that, if you're new to church or maybe you've not been in a church like this church and you have questions, man, we're glad that you're here and uh, we want you to just kind of be aware of why we do what we do. Sound good? I really hope you make it out to tonight. I think it's gonna be really important as we sing and celebrate and worship together. Okay, we have a ton to cover today in Mark chapter nine. If you're new with us today, we've been in this gospel, this book of Mark for 26 weeks, and we've been covering a lot of ground. Today, we're gonna look at some really fun and bizarre and interesting stuff. So if you have your Bibles, head there. We're gonna be in verses 30 through 50, and I wanna take a second and pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the gift that it is to sit under the word. And I, I just confess that th- there's really nothing that I could say that's gonna make much of a difference today if you don't come and move with the power of your spirit. And I pray today that you would give us res- uh, a, a sense of re- receptivity to your word today and hunger for your word today and a desire to be formed as your people in the world. And I, I pray specifically for my friends that are here that they don't know where they stand with you or they're not really sure what they believe or they're wrestling, I pray today would be a real gift for them so that they could get an insight into what it really looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Show them, help them, and draw them in. We just invite you. Would you come and move through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. In 1991, Madonna uh, was interviewed by Vanity Fair. This was the height of her career. She was seeing... The, the kind of peak success that every entertainer hopes to see. And at one point during this interview, she said these words. Just think about how bizarre this is. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. It's pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And this is crazy to me because since the 80s, Madonna, who doesn't even need a last name because we all know who we're talking about, has been so famous that she's been known globally as the queen of pop. It's estimated that her net worth is sitting around $550 million, which is the highest grossing net worth for any uh, female entertainer in American history. I mean, you cannot find a more successful person who has achieved cultural greatness at its prime. And yet here she is in this interview, and she's just saying, I've done the thing, I've achieved the greatness, and yet I still am driven by mediocrity. I'm driven by the sense of not being a special person. Isn't that fascinating? I wonder how much of us have been attuned in our own emotional health to know the ways that we crave greatness, the, way, the ways that we long to make an impact, the ways that we long to be somebody in the world, and yet often feel inadequate, and we have this drive to be great. I mean, think of any child that you've ever asked, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're not going to get a mediocre, lame career answer from that child. Any child you ask, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up is going to be some epic, amazing thing. I want to be a celebrity. I want to be a scientist, like a rocket, not just like a normal scientist, like a rocket scientist. I want to be an astronaut. I want to, you know, I asked my kids this, what do you want to be? And the answers were uh, a a world-famous pastry chef 
and a veterinarian and a world-famous horseback rider. So we're just going to diversify our options here, and those are the things that we're chasing. And so it's just like this desire for greatness is in all of us, and it shows up in different ways. I mean, think back to any high school graduation ceremony, and everybody feels it, right? We're going to go change the world. Middle life has a way of beating that out of us eventually, but it's still there to some degree. And Jesus actually has something to say about true greatness. He doesn't want to shame us for that desire. In fact, I want to argue that he put the desire for greatness in us, but often it's misguided and it's disordered and he wants to adjust it. That's what we're looking at today is Jesus's perspective on true greatness. So in light of that, here's what's fascinating about the story. Jesus is going to do something that he rarely does in Mark, or at least rarely are we brought into it. He's going to sit down, he's going to open up his mouth, and he's going to teach. We've heard that he taught, but rarely are we brought into the sermon that he taught. Today, we get to just sit as flies on the wall and listen to the content of the sermon. So look at verse 30, and let's jump in. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. The idea here is Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. If you remember back to Mark, he's constantly getting bombarded, constantly getting almost harassed by people in need. And this is a moment where he's saying, I actually need to step away from the needs out there, and I need, to, I need to be with my disciples, and I need to teach them some stuff that they need to know. So that's what he's doing. He's teaching them. What was he saying? Well, he was saying, the Son of Man, that's another reference for himself. He's referring to himself. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I love this, verse 32, but his disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask, them, ask him. You know when you like are afraid of the answer, so you just don't ask the question? That's what the disciples are doing here. Jesus is very clear, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead, and they're freaked out by this. Why is that? Well, remember, their concept of the Messiah up to this point does not include a suffering servant. They are thinking that Jesus is the future king of Israel, and he's going to dominate the Roman Empire. He's going to push out the enemies. He's going to ascend to the throne, and they're going to be there watching, and they're going to be a part of this whole deal. They don't have a grid for a suffering Messiah. It's just like not a category. It would be like today if somebody ran for president of the United States and part of their campaign process, part of their slogan was, vote for me because I'm going to die before inauguration day. You'd be like, why would we vote for you? Because we actually need a president that's going to be living and breathing, not one that's going to die before inauguration day. And that's what it sounds like when Jesus talks about his death. Hey, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm the king and I'm going to die. And they're like, whoa, 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 this is not what we thought. You can't die. You're the king. The whole point is you not dying and you being the king to restore Israel back to her rightful place. Here's what's fascinating. There are three times in this gospel that Jesus explicitly mentions his death and his resurrection. This is the second time. And every time Jesus does this, it's immediately followed by this highly misunderstood, almost comical irony of the disciples where it just goes right over their head. They don't get it. So three times Jesus says, I'm going to die. Three times the disciples totally miss it in almost a comical way. And then each of those three times, Jesus follows that up with an opportunity to teach about real discipleship. 
That's what he's going to do here. They're about to misunderstand, and he wants to take that as an opportunity to really unpack what discipleship to Jesus looks like because it's different than how you and I probably often live. So in light of that, let's look at their misunderstanding. He just said, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, and look at what they say in response. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Don't you love this? Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm gonna die. And on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die, they're like, hey, which one of us do you think is the greatest? And that's the argument that they're having. This is a bizarre misunderstanding on the whole point of why Jesus is here and what he's trying to invite his disciples into. Now, I love that Mark uses this phrase, on the way. That's significant because on the way is gonna show up a few more times in this gospel. And, and Mark is using that phrase strategically because in his mind, there are two ways and they're very, very different. You have the way of the disciples and then you have the way of Jesus. He's not just referring to them heading to Capernaum. What he's ultimately referring to is Jesus and his disciples heading to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die. But in the disciples' mind, they're on the way to Jesus, and in their mind, they're thinking, he's going to become the king, and we're his entourage. We're with him, and and he's going to start doling out different responsibilities in his government and different power structures, and so we're going to be a part of that. They think they're headed to Jerusalem for greatness when actually Jesus, in his way, is headed to Jerusalem for greatness through death. So they think they're headed for power and greatness, they're actually heading with Jesus on his way to self-giving love, sacrifice himself for the good of the world. This misunderstanding is so frequent within Jesus and the disciples, it's fascinating. James Edwards says it this way. He says, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection and suffering and death. The disciples, on the other hand, voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life the, the, the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. So here's what's happening. Jesus is trying to get his disciples out of their way and into his way. And the same thing could be said of what he's trying to do with you and I. We have our way or the way of the world, the way of ambition, the way of all of our desires for success and greatness. And then there's Jesus' way, and he's trying to form us out of our way into his way. So look at what he does in verse 35. And he sat down and he called the 12. Uh, In our day today, when you have something important to say, you stand up and you raise your voice. And that culture, when rabbis had something important to say or to teach, they would sit down they would quiet their voice, and they would call you in close. This is like Jesus sitting down as the dad around the dinner table saying, hey, let's talk about some stuff. You think you're headed for greatness, but I need to tell you a few things about greatness. He sat down and he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Three things that I want you to see in this story. Here's the first one. Jesus is moving us from selfish ambition into servanthood. 
It's moving us from selfish ambition into servanthood. I love this because I, I kind of get the feeling if any of you or if I was Jesus in this story, we would freak out on the disciples at this point. Are you kidding me? You're talking about being great? I'm on my way to die for you crazy people and you're arguing about which one of you are the greatest? Get out of it. Like I would be so frustrated with them. And yet what Jesus does, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't raise his voice at them. He doesn't say your desire to be great is, is bizarre and wrong. He doesn't do that. He actually sits down and he says, hey, you want to be great? That's okay. I put greatness in you. I put the desire to be great in you, but let me redefine for you what true greatness is. And what he begins to do is turn everything upside down. And if you haven't noticed, this is what Jesus does par excellence. Every single thing we think about greatness or about discipleship or about whatever, he flips it on its head and he says things like this. Oh, you want to be first? You need to be last. You want to be big? Well, you have to go small. You want to be significant? Then you need to make yourself insignificant for the good of other people. You want to be great and powerful? then become the servant of all people. Now that word servant in Greek is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. If you grew up in church and you had deacons, who knows what comes to your mind? But let me define what that word means. It was an everyday Greek word that simply meant waiting tables or serving as a waiter or a waitress. So the word deacon or servant means being a table waiter is what it means. And it's not describing somebody who is a slave and functioning as a servant. It's not describing somebody who's getting a paycheck and just waiting tables so that they can survive and receive income. It's talking about the type of relationship when you have someone in your life that you love, you have someone in your life that you're concerned for, you have someone in your life that you're attuned with their needs, and you take it upon yourself to be responsible for every bit of their needs. You're waiting on them hand and foot. You see your role in life as meant to care for them and to serve them and provide for them and give them what they need. That's what this word servant means. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be great, you actually need to become a servant of all. Now, the problem with you and I when we read this is we tend to think like, oh, check the box, I serve people. Like I serve my boss at work. I do things, you know, whether I like him or her or not, I do things for them or I serve my spouse or I serve my roommate or a close friend or my kids or whatever the case may be. We have people in our life that we tend to think of, oh yeah, I serve those people. So check this box, I've completed what Jesus has asked of me. But actually what he wants to do is go a little bit deeper and define for us who we are called to serve or what it looks like to be the servant of all. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I love this. He, he's sitting down, and he grabs a child, and he pulls him into the store, and he says, whoever receives this child receives me. Whoever is a servant to someone like this child is a servant to me. Now, children today in our culture are seen as valuable and precious for the most part. I mean, whenever a child walks into a room, especially one that's like in an infant carrier, everyone's like, oh, you know, and looking at the child and oh, everyone's attention's on the child. And the child in many ways holds a prominent place in our 
hearts in our culture. If you walk in with a, a two or a three or a four-year-old, it's like, oh, that's so cute. Like, we're, we're very aware of the cuteness of that child. Even if the child is like, can we be honest, not that cute. It's cute. It's like pudgy and funky looking, but it's cute because we love, we love babies. We love kids. And the first century was not that way. In the first century, children were seen not just like as a nuisance, but imagine in a world where the infant mortality rate is at an all-time high, where most infants didn't survive. And imagine a world where it's an agrarian society. You have to be a hard worker to pull your weight just to thrive and survive in that day and age. Then what, meant, what that meant was you didn't hold value unless you could also hold a tool and do some work. You didn't hold value unless you could pull your weight. You didn't hold value unless you got to a certain age where you were a highly functioning, contributing member of society. And this is also on top of a Jewish patriarchal system that primarily assigned value to men and then to women and then to slaves and then almost behind that and below that were children. They were in many ways the least of the least. And that's the point. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, imagine those that culture doesn't value. Imagine those that we have said don't hold any weight in our hearts. Imagine the people that even in your own mind, just you don't really think about and you don't really care about and you don't really whatever, the least of the least, what Jesus is inviting his disciples into is if you want to be great, then you're going to become the servant to those people. Servant of And by the way, this isn't Jesus being like, and only do this if you want to be a really mature disciple. Like all the other disciples that just want to be like normal disciples, you don't have to do it. If you want to be like an extra disciple and get extra credit, then do this. No, he's saying this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. In Matthew 25, there's a story that Jesus gives, a short story with a point called a parable. And it's about the sheep and the goats. And what Jesus is describing is the day when he is going to return from heaven to this earth and he's going to gather a group of people to himself. And these people, they're all claiming to be followers of Jesus. They look like followers of Jesus for the most part on the outside. And he's going to separate them and show who really is his followers as opposed to those who really are not his followers. And do you know the defining difference for Jesus in this parable on who really is his followers and who isn't? It's all solely based on their treatment of the poor, of those in prison, of the hungry, of the thirsty, of the stranger, or how we would define it today in our culture, the immigrant, of the naked and the sick, of the least of these. And what Jesus says there, as with here in Mark 9, is the way that you treat them is the way that you treat me. And not just me, but my Father who sent me. If you fail to treat them with a servant-like attitude where you're actually positioning yourself behind them and below them and putting your needs as secondary to their needs, if you are not a person who is serving these types of least of these in society, then you're actually not serving Jesus himself. This isn't like an extra credit discipleship thing. This is just a discipleship thing, right? He's moving us out of ambition for our own lives, for our own selves, into servanthood for all people. This is highly convicting. There's a book uh, called Culture Making by Andy Crouch, and it's a a really good book. I read it years ago. I think it's still pretty good. It should be. And in that book, there's a a distinguishing thing that he does between two women who died almost around the same time. 
You know these women. The first one was Princess Diana, and the other was Mother Teresa. Both were well-known, but for very, very different reasons. And he makes this this, uh, comparison between the two. He says this, For nearly all of us, becoming a celebrity, or Princess Diana, is completely, categorically impossible. For all of us, becoming like Mother Teresa is completely, categorically possible. Now listen to this question. So why are so many of us trying to become like a celebrity and so few trying to become like Mother Teresa? The desire for greatness is not bad, but it needs to be redefined and redirected because our disordered loves have shifted it into being about us when greatness, as a matter of fact, is about us becoming the servant of all. This is the first transition that Jesus wants to give us. What would change about your life if you took this seriously? What would change about your budget? What would change about your time? The way that you use social media, the way that you use any platform that God has given you. What would change about your own attitude to yourself and others if you saw yourself as less of an ambitious person for your own felt needs and more of a diakonos, a servant of all people? Now, that's the first thing, is he's moving us from selfish ambition into servanthood. There's another transition. There's another move that he wants to make. And and it's funny how this thing happens. So look at verse 38. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon. And then we read this. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Let's just pause there. Now, sometimes we read that story and we're like, oh, that's a separate account. But remember, the chapter and verse breakdowns in Mark were not inspired by God. It wasn't like when Mark was writing this gospel, he's like, chapter 9, verse 35. He's not doing that. He's just recounting the story. So often we miss the impact. Jesus is in the middle of teaching about true greatness and becoming a servant of all. And John's like, oh, oh, Jesus, uh, I'm going to let you finish. But something I need to tell you real quick about greatness Uh, Here's something we did today. We found a guy who was casting out demons in your name, but don't worry, we stopped him for you. You know, we stopped him, so it's not that big of a deal. I just wanted you to know as we're talking about greatness that we're great because we did that. I mean, that's the context here. And and this is one of those moments where you wish you could have a video camera to see the face of Jesus. He's got to be like hands in his face, just like, who are these people, right? What are you doing? Notice what he says in verse 39. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, dummy. No, actually, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Here's the second way that Jesus wants to form us, is from prideful exclusion into gospel inclusion from prideful exclusion to gospel inclusion. This story's funny because he interrupts Jesus in the middle of his greatness talk to talk about this. It's also funny because, do you remember what happened right before this? John and the other disciples could not cast out a demon from the boy who was possessed. So they've had ministry failure. Here's a guy that's had ministry success, and they want to put a stop to it. Doesn't pride do that? Pride is kind of like a zero-sum game. It's like, if you look good, I look bad. If you're complimented, then I'm, I'm not. If you're, if you're given a raise, then I'm not. If you're you know, elevated in society, then I'm lowered. It's kind of a zero-sum game. What's really happening here for John 
is summed up perfectly in his own words. Verse 38, we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. What should that have read? We tried to stop him because he wasn't following who? You. He wasn't following you, Jesus. But that's the whole point. He actually was following Jesus. He was doing what he was doing in the name of Jesus. He found these people that were harassed by evil and not in the right mind. And in the power and name of Jesus, this guy, whoever he is, is bringing comfort and healing and wholeness in the power of Jesus to these people. And they try to stop him, not because he's not following Jesus, but because he's not following them. And often this is what pride does to you and I. Pride's equation goes something like this. Follower of Jesus plus follower of me equals inclusion and acceptance by me. If you follow Jesus and if you think the way that I think about every little detail, if you believe the way that I believe, if you vote the way that I vote, if you see things the way that I see things, then I'll have inclusion and acceptance of you. That's the equation of pride. And Jesus actually wants to shift both his disciples and us out of this prideful exclusion into gospel inclusion. Here's a guy that's doing what he's doing in the name and power of Jesus, and that wasn't enough for the disciples to treat him as family. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute because I just want to say as a pastor that I I think that there's like another pandemic going on in, in the midst of our pandemic, and it's Christians in the West who are being driven by pride, and I'm a part of it. This is one of the most convicting things to me this last week and a half as I was studying this text and studying this passage, is how I often am just like John here. Here's what I mean. If you voted for our current president, and, uh, and I would assume if you did vote for our current president, then you kind of look back at the people who voted for our last president as buffoons and idiots. And it's like, well, they might be followers of Jesus, but I have no business with those people, right? If you voted for our last president, then you probably look at our current president and anyone who voted for him as buffoons. And you're like, I'll have no business with those people, even if they are followers of Jesus. Or take the issue of masks. If you're someone who wears a mask, it's so easy, even among the church within Christian circles, to look at someone who doesn't wear a mask and be like, you're the problem. You're the problem. You hate your neighbor. You don't care enough. If you're a person who doesn't wear a mask, so easy to look at other followers of Jesus with a mask on and go, you're just being driven by fear. You're so immature and you're so fill in the blank. You can go down the list, like the way we treat each other with a vaccine or without a vaccine or what. Like we are increasingly as a culture becoming more tribal and more exclusive and adding more and more and more things to the list of Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus, and then I'll accept you. Like how many times I've heard people even recently say, I don't know how to navigate relationships now because I don't know where they stand. And what we're really saying there is, I don't know how to treat you until I know where you stand. And then once I know where you stand, I'll decide how I'll treat you, whether that's good or whether that's poorly. Friends, may it not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. If someone is a follower of Jesus, they're no longer just a person. They are brother or they are sister. And they are the ones that you and I are called to get behind and underneath and to serve and to lay our lives down for. This is what you and I are called to, to move out of prideful exclusion 
into gospel inclusion. I'm not saying that somebody can believe whatever the heck they want to believe about Jesus and it's no big deal, but what I am saying is that on matters of secondary importance, on matters where we should broaden the tent of Christianity, let us broaden the tent of Christianity and let us love and let us serve and not exclude where Jesus would have us include. This is so convicting, isn't it? How do we do this? Well, it's really simple. Look at what he says in verse 41. It says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, not because you voted the same way they did, not because you believe the exact same way they believe, not because you hold all the convictions that they hold. If, if someone gives you a cup of water to drink for the sole fact that they belong to Christ, will by no means lose his or her reward. Here's the idea. This cup of water language is just small, simple acts of kindness and affection that often go unnoticed in our culture, but are really significant to the Father who sees all in secret. What he's saying is, hey, just find people in your life, and if they belong to Christ, one small act of kindness by another, do them good. This is how we define greatness in the church of Jesus. It's moving away from selfish ambition and away from pride into this servanthood mentality and into this gospel inclusion mentality. So what would it look like if you stopped viewing everybody in your world as a certain political party or a certain perspective on COVID or a certain way of fill in the blank? And what if you started to look at those who are followers of Jesus as brother and sister and the one that Jesus has called you to lay your life down for? All right, so that's the second transition. Here's the third and final transition Jesus wants to move us into. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now there's some cultural things about millstones and the sea, but that's scary and bad, right? Nobody wants a big rock thrown around your neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus goes on. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That last line is from Isaiah. The worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Now, there's a lot I wish I could say here about hell and all of that. The word that's used here is Gehenna. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. Suffice it to say that nobody wants to go to hell, right? It's a bad thing. It's scary. It sounds painful. Jesus is using intense language here, and here's why. Here's the third thing. He's already tried to move us out of our selfish ambition into this this servanthood way of life. He's moving us out of this prideful exclusion into this gospel inclusion. The third thing he wants to do here is move us from communal carelessness into communal caution. Now that sounds weird, that might sound vague, but here's two things to keep in mind as we talk about this teaching here. The first is that this is not to the crowds. Remember, Jesus is where? He's sitting in a house in Capernaum with who? his disciples. He's talking to his guys, and he's saying, hey, fellas, this is how serious I take your lifestyle and the way that you live as it relates to other people in 
community. And we know that he's talking about community, number two, because every single thing about this whole text is dealing with our relationship with other people. Notice how it starts. It starts this way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. He's referencing the way that you and I relate to other people in our lives. The least of these are people that are followers of Jesus, like this guy who's casting out demons that isn't a part of the disciples. He's talking about our relationship to other Christians here. And then we also know that because of the way he ends it with this, be at peace with one another. So what is Jesus saying here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I want you to take your responsibility for your life so seriously that when you have things in your life that cause you to sin and specifically cause other people in your life to sin, it's so big of a deal to me that it'd be better for you to be thrown into the sea or thrown into hell than to lead someone else in your life astray. How significant is that? What he's saying here is actually you're no longer an autonomous isolated individual that gets to live and live and do whatever you please where you're only responsible for you and everybody else can just deal with themselves. No, 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 no. As followers of Jesus, you've now been brought into a community and what you do or what you don't do, what you say yes to or what you say no to is significant for other people in your world. That you are so responsible that if you or I cause another person in our life to stumble or fall into sin, Jesus is showing us what a really big deal that is to him. And this, again, is true greatness. This is all what he's trying to get us to as we see true greatness flipped on its head, where it's no longer about me and my life and how I live and doing what I want and how I please. It's actually about you and and building you up and pouring my life out for you and making sure that I'm serving you and making sure that I'm not doing anything that might cause you to sin. It's such a big deal to Jesus. And notice how he ends it here. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That might be one of the most confusing set of verses in all of Mark. Like if, if you want to read comment, you could go for days on commentaries trying to explain this. But here's just the, the, the basic uh, simple understanding. What, what he's saying here is this. In the Old Testament, they had animal sacrifices that they would salt first. Salt is both literally a preservative used in the Old Testament and New Testament as a preservative, but it's also uh, figuratively a preservative, right? So they would salt these sacrifices, then they would bring these sacrifices to the priest, and the priest would light these sacrifices on fire. And it was said that that aroma that would come off of those animals was a pleasing aroma to God. The sacrifice was this pleasing aroma to God. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is that when you and I learn true greatness, when you and I learn to posture ourselves not not with selfish ambition, but with servanthood, when we learn to actually put ourselves in this place of gospel inclusion as, as opposed to prideful exclusion, when you and I learn to care about our community around us and not just live for ourselves, we're functioning in a way where we're these, this sacrifice to God that is a pleasing aroma. And that fire metaphor, that fire metaphor is talking about refinement. And what God is doing is he's changing who we are. He's refining who we are. He's showing us what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus and more so what it means to be a fully flourishing human being in this world. That's what he's doing. 
So friends, when you and I reject what our culture has told us about greatness, when we become a servant of all, when we broaden our metaphorical tent to love and serve and include those that voted differently or function differently or have different convictions than we do, when we take so much responsibility, not just for my own sin, but how my sin might even affect you, we are stepping into true greatness. That's what Jesus is saying. All right, let me close. I want to bring us back to where we started this whole thing. Verse 31. For Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Jesus is not asking you and I to do anything that he has not already done. Jesus starts this teaching off with his own death. Friends, here's how low God came. He left heaven to come to this earth, and not just to come as this flaming, fiery deity in all of his glory, but he came to this earth as a breakable baby. He went so low that on this earth, Jesus functioned as a servant, a diakonos, for all people. There's a moment in John's gospel where Jesus gets down on his knees. He takes a towel and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, the ones who are arguing about greatness. And yet here's the greatest person who has ever breathed a breath serving them. Jesus included all kinds of people that normally would never get along, like Simon the Zealot, who was actively trying to see Roman soldiers murdered because he hated Rome so much, and Matthew, the tax collector, that was actively raising money for Rome. And yet Jesus, in his loving embrace, brings both of those guys into his circle. And what Jesus continues to do again and again is he actually cares so much, not just about himself, but about you and I, to the point to where on the cross, he takes ultimate responsibility by grabbing our sin and our shame and our failures and putting them on himself. He doesn't say, well, that's your life. You screwed it up. You fix it. He said, your life is so precious and valuable that I'm going to take what you've done and put it on myself. Jesus receives the justice from the Father that you and I deserved for our sins because he took our responsibility on the cross. Friends, Jesus dies ultimately as the servant of all, and then he's risen from the dead, and ultimately the Father exalts him to the right hand of glory. He's given the place of prominence and greatness like no one else. He is showing us the way to greatness. And if you and I are going to be his followers, our life over time has to start resembling more and more his path of life too. He's trying to get us off of our way and onto his way. One glass of water at a time, you and I can actually become great.